We've been talking about Pentecost for weeks now, the lead up to Pentecost and the lead away from Pentecost, trying to understand what Pentecost is all about, trying to understand what this, this breakthrough of spirit is all about. And we've been looking at it from different, maybe facets of the prism uh, of, the, of the stone here as we've been looking, trying to zero in, hone in, circle in on a clearer and clearer paradigm because that's all we're going to get. We're going to get a paradigm. We're going to get a, a way of looking at our process, the way of looking at our journey that can take us where we want to go. It's not an answer per se. It's not a definition per se. When Jesus tried to define spirit, he said, hey, it's like the wind. <laughs> Can't see it. Don't know where it's coming from, where it's going to. And that's about the best that you can do when it comes to spirit in words, in finite language. But we're trying to kind of circle in and see if we can get a clear idea of how we can take concrete steps forward. And that's the key. If we keep these concepts up in the stratosphere, there's nothing concrete that we can do. There is nothing that we can latch onto with teeth and traction to take us where it is we really want to go. And so last week we were looking at it from the, the point of view of abundance versus scarcity, right? That the way that we are raised the way our society, the way the world is, everything is legal, everything is transactional, everything is performance for approval, everything is quid pro quo, and everything is zero sum. We know this. We know that if we win, someone else has to lose. There's only so much oil in the ground. And if we take our share, then that means somebody has less. That is the reality of our lives, and that's the mentality that we have grown up with. And yet Jesus is trying to show us a completely different way of looking at life from a spiritual point of view, where none of those apply, where God has an infinite number of best friends, where he can shower out love on everyone all the time, regardless of deserving, not deserving, earning, not earning, something that completely changes the way that we look at this. When we looked at Jesus' teaching, when we looked at Jesus' abundance miracles, you know, overflowing catches of fish, feeding thousands from a few morsels and then having baskets left over, when we looked at even the first words of the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic, our Father in heaven, but realizing that those words signify that all of creation, all of the heavens, are the face of the interior essence of God. To the Jews, a name, Shem, is the exterior, exterior surface, the, the face that reveals the inner essence. And so what does the heavens reveal to us about our God? Insane extravagance. Extravagance personified. Abundance beyond belief. As we look at the number of galaxies and stars and the, and the life forms on each planet revolving around those stars, what Jesus is showing us is something completely different. This abundance, it's almost like, you know, we're, we're sitting at a table that is laid out with the most incredible feast, and we're praying for God to feed us. And he's slapping his forehead and said, take and eat. It's all right there. I can't load the table any more than it's already loaded. Everything I have is already yours. What part of everything didn't you understand? But that's the attitude, because we can't break through. And so we say we believe this. We say we believe in God's love. We say we believe in God's abundance. But I got a question from somebody this week. 
and he asked that he would assume, let me just read what he said, I'd assume that most people would accept this as true. What's this? It's the abundance of God. It's the absolute outpouring constantly of God, that you can't turn God off. I'd assume that most people would accept this as true. But then why would the believers, quote, unquote, why would these believers not be living happy, healthy, and abundant lives? Because the truth is, we look around, we say we believe these things, but do our lives reflect the beliefs that we say we hold? We talk about what we're convinced of, but is it really changing our attitude toward life and the way that we approach it? And then as I was talking about uh, what I was going to talk about this morning with my wife, Marion said, I think you should be talking about transformation. You know? She's actually given me the last couple of ideas for Sunday messages, so you can thank her or complain there if you would like to. But she said, I think we should talk about transformation. What is it that gets us to actually transform? And I know what she was thinking about, to a certain extent at least, because she said, you know, I know that the, many of the customers who come in where she works at, at Home Depot, you know, would say that they're professing Christians, and yet they're so nasty. They're so abusive. Where is the disconnect? What's going on here? They say they believe in all this stuff. They believe in God's love. And yet they can act like this. What is it about transformation that is not happening, even though it's so central in Jesus' teaching, so central in Christian tradition? Where is the disconnect? Why is it not happening? Well, can we take another look at this? So, as we've been talking about Pentecost, we've been talking about it in terms of the second birth, the second baptism, the one that takes us to another level, the transformation. We talked about it in terms of the renewed mind that Paul talks about, that we find our transformation through the renewing of our mind, and we talked about what he was really saying about that renewed mind. We talked about all of these things, and I want to emphasize every single one of these images whether it's Pentecost, second baptism, second birth, transformation, renewing of the mind, drinking living water, and we go on and on with what Jesus tried to pour out to us in terms of imagery, are all pointing in the same direction, all trying to take us to the same place. He's just keeping talking until enough lights go on over everyone's head that he can move on to the next subject. But if it comes right down to it, Jesus is kind of a Johnny One Note. There's one thing he's trying to get across to us. It's this kingdom living. It's this connection with Father. It's this understanding of the abundance of the Father. If you get that, the rest flows. He's talking about a point at which there is an effect. Want to know why we call this place the effect? If there's no effect to our faith, if there's no effect to what we say we're convinced of and believe, then what does it matter? What's the point? Jesus is pointing us, Pentecost is pointing us, transformation is pointing us to a moment where we break through so that what we believe and what we are convinced of spiritually has a physical effect. There is a change, there's a transformation that affects everyone around us, everyone in our blast zone is affected positively by the changes that are actually occurring in us. And until that happens, our faith, our spirituality, it remains theoretical. It remains abstract, out of reach, not real. This is exactly what James was trying to get across to us. And he got much maligned for this, especially at the Reformation. But if you look at James 2, starting at verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? 
can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now, what it sounds like James is saying is not what he's saying. It's important that we understand James is not saying that we do works to create or earn our faith or earn our salvation. That's the way it was taken. Martin Luther wanted this book thrown out of the canon uh, at the start of the Reformation because he called it the Epistle of Straw because it was seemed to be flying directly in the face of salvation by grace, but it's not. What James is trying to say is that works are created by faith automatically. Faith is the works that we do, if you want to think of it that way. Faith is the effect on our lives of our spiritual beliefs. Faith to the ancient Hebrews was action. It wasn't thought. Everything to the Hebrews was action. They were, they were a race of verbs, if you want to look at it that way. Everything was about motion. But faith is action. If there is no changed action, then there is no faith. If there isn't an effect, then what is it that we're talking about? Two weeks ago, we talked about what the greatest block to Pentecost, to this transformation, to this effect that we're talking about, what is the greatest block to that breakthrough, that spiritual breakthrough? And in a word, we talked about it being legalism, but legalism broadly understood as this whole system, this whole world system of performance for approval and and transactional understanding of life and quid pro quo, all of that, zero sum, all of that is the greatest block to having a spiritual breakthrough because it precludes us even being able to see the abundance of God or the way that God is actually working behind the scenes. And then last week, we talked about those same beliefs as blocking the experience of abundance. Of course they do. If we're having a scarcity mentality, if that is our basic core belief, then of course we're not going to be able to see the abundance of God. Now this week, I want to take a look at what blocks our transformation. What blocks us moving into the kind of effect that we're talking about, into a visible, relational effect that leaves people better than we found them. Well, guess what? It's the same thing. It's still the legal transactional scarcity mentality, but if we dig a little deeper, why does this mentality block the transformation that we seek? And the reason, I believe, is because all of these, all of this mentality that we're talking about, are merely attempts at control. Control. Ways of minimizing risk, okay? and maximizing our advantage. That's really what it's all about. If you think about all of what we've been talking about in terms of the world system, we're trying to minimize risk and maximize our advantage. And this begins at earliest childhood. We learn as kids in our homes or wherever it is that we are growing up what is rewarded, right, and what is punished. We learn to fight for our share of things. This is just the way it works. Anybody who's just even babysat kids, 
even been around a Thanksgiving table with kids, you know what I'm talking about. And especially if you get three kids together, then the group dynamic sets in and everything changes. Everything is about fairness. It's got to be fair. That's not fair, right? So we learn this at the earliest age. We learn that we can control risk and reward by playing the game that either parents, schools, churches, greater society have laid out for us. If we play the game well, if we follow the rules, we get rewarded. Kind of like the seal gets the fish if it does the trick. We learn this at least, right? We learn how we can perform to be able to be approved, to get the strokes, to get the dopamine hits if you want to go that direction. And we're still doing that, right? Even with social media, just playing the rules so we get the dopamine hits, get the likes. And if our circumstances growing up were really traumatic, were really dysfunctional, then the need for control goes even deeper. It's always there. To a certain extent, it has to be there. We have to learn this as children, how we integrate with society, how we play the game of society's rules, and they change from culture to culture, don't they? But we have to learn them or we can't integrate, we can't be successful in society. Trouble is, if it's traumatic, if it's dysfunctional, those get pushed even deeper. But we all end up leaving childhood with core beliefs. These are core beliefs, unconscious beliefs, drives, compulsions, assumptions about the way the world works that we don't even know we have. It's just the way things are. But they don't go away when the circumstances change. And so as we're learning all of this, and ACA is probably the, the, the best look at this, adult children of alcoholics, children who live in such chaotic and dysfunctional families that they have to grow up too fast. They essentially have to become the parents of their siblings and sometimes the parents of their parents. And all of that programming doesn't go away as they get older and circumstances change. But as you look at your families, and maybe you're thinking about your own family, maybe you're thinking about yourself right now, some of us, as we're exposed to all this, learn to obey and learn to perform to manage our risk and to maximize our disadvantage, our advantage, I should say. But then others of us spin out of control, don't they? We watch them spin out of control. We watch them drop out. We watch them rebel. Maybe they give up. This is where maybe drug use comes in. They check out and they seem to spin out of control. And so what's going on here? If we have the need to, uh, uh, to control our outcomes, why are some playing the game and others are dropping out of the game? I wanted you to consider this, that when we're faced with pain, adversity, chaos, and fear, the fight or flight kicks in, right? We're either gonna fight or we're gonna flee. But both of those are still forms of control. Because the goal here is to avoid pain, to avoid disadvantage, to avoid death. To embrace the system is one way of dealing with it. To reject the system is another way to deal with it. So performance or rebellion or exiting, these are all still attempts at control. To be out of control, at least as defined by one system, is to be in control in another system of your own creation, I suppose. And you can still avoid the pain of rejection. So whatever way you go, if our 
motive is to avoid the pain of life and to maximize our advantage, we're still trying to control things, even when it looks like someone's spinning out of control. And remember, these are not conscious thoughts. You're not thinking and plotting all of this. This is happening all subliminally. It's happening all unconscious. But these core beliefs that we have down there in the unconscious part of our minds are really shaping our world. They're the ones that are really driving the bus. We think our minds are in control. Someone had the, uh, the image of a rider on an elephant, right? The rider is riding the elephant, and yeah, he can direct the elephant to a certain degree. But if that elephant wants to go where it wants to go, it's going to go there, and there's absolutely nothing this little 160-pound person is going to do with a how-many-ton elephant. Our subconscious is like that in about the same proportions. You know, We think that we're in control, but it's really the core beliefs this compulsive core need that is, cha- that is directing our paths. As a compulsive need, core need to face life is not consciously seen as such. It's something that's happening underneath. So what we do is we make virtues out of law. What was this quote that I just heard? Let's see if I can get it right. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Not bad. There's another reformer, I think Jonathan Haidt was the person who said that. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So we make virtues out of law. We make virtues out of rules and obedience and tradition. And then we make virtues out of nonconformity, out of deconstruction. That's a big word right now, deconstruction. And rebellion. And then the conscious mind carries it out. And then identifies with the method that we have chosen as being itself, actually identifies the method as itself. And this then becomes who we are. We are the nonconformist. We are the rebel. We are the loyal traditionalist. We are those things. It becomes part of our identity. And this is exactly why the need to maintain control, right, the mindset of control, blocks our ability to have the transformation that we're talking about the transformation to live abundantly, the transformation to see everyone as connected. Because we'll never know who we are. We'll never know who we really are until we know that we're not our ego. We're not that conscious mind. We're not that voice that talks to us in our head. Because most of those thoughts that are spinning in your head are all attempts at control all reinforcing the you your mind thinks you are because of the way that you've adopted to manage your risk, to control life and control outcomes. We'll never know we're not our egoic mind until we let go of control. That is the egoic mind. The egoic mind, that conscious mind, is all about controlling the risk that we're talking about to personal survival. And that's what it does. Mostly, that's all it does. Think about your thoughts and the way that they spin around in there. We must let go of our need to control if we wish to transform. Now, if you've been paying attention, you're probably thinking, but wait a minute. You just said that letting go of control was also a form of control. So what the heck's going on here, Dave? Well, now it comes down to motive, doesn't it? What's your motive? And is your motive conscious or is it unconscious? Why are you trying to let go of control? Is it to avoid pain? 
Is it to maximize your advantage as you see it? Or is it to move to transformance? And are you aware of the process or are you not? It makes all the difference in the world to how letting go can be another form of control or it can be a move toward transformation. Let's take a look at Luke for a second. Chapter 18 and verse 20. This is the, it's just one of those seminal moments in, in the Gospels that I keep coming back to. But every time I come back to it, I'm seeing it from a little bit different vantage. This is where the rich young man comes to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And the first thing Jesus says is, you know the commandments, right? Do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the rich young man says, all these things I have kept from my youth. And in another gospel, Jesus looks at him, sees that what he's saying is true and sincere, and he loves him for that. But this man is trying with everything that is in him to find eternal life. But when Jesus hears this, he says to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the man heard, hears this, he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, if we over-literalize this, we're only going to be looking at it in terms of material wealth, but think deeper. Think about everything that we've talked about in terms of our core beliefs. What we truly believe is our salvation. What we truly believe is our way through life. What we truly believe is our survival. Are you willing to sell those? Are you willing to let those go? See, the young man here is working on two control points. The first one, right, are the rules and the doctrine of his faith, the law. He has followed the law assiduously. Jesus sees this in him, sees his sincerity, knows that it's true. He's not bluffing here. He's taking this seriously. Everything about his religion, everything about the law. But he knows that something is still missing. He's still feeling this call. But the second point of control is his wealth and his status, the status that wealth brings. And he's not ready to give that up. He's probably not ready to give anything up. But Jesus says, are you willing, willing to sell everything that you have? Let it go and follow a different path. Ironically, this doesn't mean that he had to sell a thing materially, but it means that he needed to cut the emotional umbilical cord to that thing that he had to stop seeing it as his survival, as his lifeline, and move to something else. Take a look at Luke 9, starting at verse 59. He said to another, Jesus said to another potential follower, right? Follow me. But the, he said, the follower, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Sounds a little harsh and unrealistic, unfair from Jesus' point of view, don't it? Yeah? And then another comes to him. I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's even less understandable, isn't it, from our point of view? 
Now, we've got to understand that burying your father and mother in that culture could mean one of two things. It could mean that they already died and you're waiting for the second burial. They would put the corpse unembalmed whole into a tomb, and when it had completely decomposed down to the bones, they would go back in, collect the bones, put them into an ossuary, usually a stone box, and bury that. Maybe that's what he's talking about. So it's a longer period of time, right? Or it could mean since you're supposed to honor your father and mother, the fifth commandment, that he was going to wait for them and stay with them until they died and then bury them. Either way, it's an attempt at controlling the narrative, isn't it? It's an attempt at controlling the timing. It's an attempt to control the process, the, the, the parameters within which I'm going to follow you, Lord. And Jesus is just swatting that away. Same thing with the second one. Let me go say goodbye. You know, if you're not looking forward, if you're still clinging to the past. Remember Lot's wife was turned to a pillar of salt when she looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah? Why? You know, Because she was still yearning for the things of the past. She needed to look forward. Jesus is saying the same thing here. Can you cut the emotional umbilical cord? Can you change your mindset, your worldview? Can you see value in the unseen things that are going to transform everything? Because if you can't, yes, you're still loved. Yes, I still love you, and you still can be a part of our group, but you're never going to be able to break through. You're not going to be able to go where I'm going. He's trying to take them to a deeper place, and so he swats these things away and points to an interior attitude, points to those unconscious drives that they don't even realize. But by attacking the family unit here, Jesus is getting down to the nitty-gritty but he's not talking about personal irresponsibility. He's not talking about them neglecting their family. He's talking about a sea change within them to start submitting to a power that is greater than themselves and start su- submitting to life on life's terms and not the way that they would like it to be. In John, several times, Jesus speaks about the way his own process looks and works. At John 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I do nothing on my own. See, we understand theologically that Jesus is on a level, equal level, with God the Father in spirit. And yet Jesus is talking about subordination here. He's talking about submission here. As a person, he's talking about moving beyond his own ego boundaries and seeing himself as connected with, identified with, this power greater than himself in that sense, his father. That he doesn't work on his own initiative. He works in concert with this larger understanding of life. He's cracking open his ego at this point. At John 8, starting at verse 28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me, and He who sent me is with me and has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Not as a rule follower, because it's His very identity. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, what he's saying is, there is nothing I do that is outside the Father's will because we're one. There's no daylight between us. It's not about following rules. It's about becoming the rules. A complete sea change, a different way of looking, cracking open the small egoic identity 
with this ultimate reality, identification with God himself, with life beyond the small self. When Jesus went into the wilderness, remember those three temptations, those three symbolic temptations, each attacking a core belief, a core compulsion that we have? When he was turning the stones into bread, that would be relevance. If he had bowed down and took power over the kingdoms of the world, that's power, of course. If he had thrown himself down from the pinnacle of the temple and was borne up by angels in front of all the adoring crowd, that would have been about a spectacular attention. Those are core drives that we all have. They're ways that we go about minimizing risk, maximizing advantage, don't we? Relevance, power, attention. He's cracking that open. And how does he do it? Always by relying on the scripture, on the sayings, on the wisdom of his elders, the prophets who came before him, on God. He doesn't do it on his own initiative. He does it in concert with everything that he knows and everything that he's experienced. He brings it all together. The process of cracking the ego is submitting to these larger powers around us, connecting with, not isolating from, letting go of personal control in favor of being connected with. Just like the first three steps of AA, to admit that you're powerless, that your life is unmanageable, doesn't mean that you're a victim, doesn't mean that you don't have a choice, but what is your choice? The second step, to come to believe that there is a power greater than myself who can and will restore my life to sanity. And then third, to actually submit to that power, give your life and your will over, to hitch your wagon to that power and move through and take you where maybe you don't go on your own. That's the whole point. This is what Jesus is doing. He's showing us what it looks like in the wilderness. He's showing us what it looks like as he talks about the relationship with his father. I don't do it on my own initiative. I let go. The ego is cracked open at this point. But we don't want our ego cracked, do we? <laughs> no way. We do anything probably to try to stay in control, to try to stay within our little eggshell. In this respect, we're egotistical. Now, when I learned that word, it meant conceited, it meant arrogant, right? You probably, you know, you thought you were all that. That's not the way we're using egotistical here. Egotistical here is not about conceit or arrogance, although it could contain that, of course. But it's really about clinging to and centered on that voice in our head that plans the control. We're egotistical in that sense because we're centered still on trying to make this work, to control our outcomes just compulsively. And so how are we going to move around that? How can we stop? It means a process of hitting life head on. No attempt at controlling outcomes. Controlling the process by which we go, but letting the outcomes be what they are. It means we're accepting life's pain as it comes. We're suffering life's pains from the original understanding of that word. Suffering used to mean to permit or to allow, to accept. That's why Jesus said, suffer the little children to come to me. Permit, the, allow the children to come to me. Are we allowing life's pain to be part of our experience? 
or are we going to compulsively keep avoiding it and try to control it in a way that we can avoid it, we think? Now, the early church understood this difference, that suffering as Jesus suffered, even to the point of martyrdom, was a sign that we were close to Jesus. Now, they didn't go looking for the pain. The pain came to them, especially as a persecuted body, right? But to accept it, to accept it on its own terms, to endure it, is a lot different than looking for it. Because the early church understood what Jesus' message is, the way that he's showing us, is that without suffering, we don't give up control. No one gives up control voluntarily, do we? If you think you have control, are you going to give that up? But if we stop fighting and fleeing from life and the pain that life will inevitably bring, it will reveal a truth. A truth will be revealed to us. And the truth is, we have no control. (laughs) Now, we can give up an illusion once it's been revealed to us. But as long as we think we really have the control... No way. We're not going to do it. Ironically, we suffer in life to the degree that we need to be in control because once you let go of control, the pain doesn't hurt as much. Have you ever noticed that in your own life? Kind of like Scott Peck in The Road Less Traveled, the first line, life is difficult. But as soon as you accept and realize that it's difficult, guess what? It's not that difficult anymore. It's the same thing. As soon as we realize, then it changes Rohr has, uh, Richard Rohr has an interesting uh, little blip on this that I found. He said, the degree of a person's suffering is usually the same as their need to be in control. I was just with a family who suffered a death. And I think because they have generally given control to another, to God, there was, believe it or not, perfect sadness combined with intense joy. And see, this is what is so important for us to understand. When we say that if we accept and endure the pain, if we suffer the pain, that the suffering ceases, that doesn't mean that we're not going to feel the sadness. That doesn't mean that we don't go through the grief of the loss that we have endured. But what it does mean is that inordinate suffering goes down to a few less notches. And it does mean that five, six months, 12 months, 12 years after the event, we won't still be suffering anymore because we will be able to move through the cycle and the process as we need to. If we are consciously aware and if we consciously let go of the control of that pain. People who think their job is to be in control, which is almost the definition of a secular culture, interesting, is going to be a lot of suffering. On the other hand, without suffering, we don't give up control. Now, suffering is forced on us. There's nothing reasonable, logical about suffering. No one deserves it. It just comes our way. It has to come our way. Or we don't recognize our immense need for control. I want to define my life the way I want to define my life. Spirit can't let you get away with that or you'll be a very small soul, very small human. Suffering takes us out of our comfort zone, literally, where we have to find a different meaning, a bigger purpose. We have to expand the limits of our soul and our psyche and our perception. 
the way of transformation that actually has an effect that we're talking about here is the way of suffering. That is the way of accepting life and life's pain on life's terms. Not trying to control it one way or another, not trying to avoid it, but letting it happen to lean in, to immerse in, to let go of controlling outcomes, even as you continue to work a process, right? Managing risk and managing reward, letting that go. Just show up for the process. Jesus said it's the only way to the Father. It's his way. It's who he is. The way is identical with him, which is why he said, I am the way, and no one comes to the Father but through me. It's the only way to crack open the ego to a larger identity. And as we said, we don't want that ego cracked. Rohr said something also really interesting. He said, some of the most egotistical people I know are clergy. Now, isn't that an interesting statement? Why would that be? Why would some of the most egotistical people he know, and understood the way we're talking about it, right? Maybe they are arrogant and a pain in the rear, but the point is that, that they are also completely centered on still controlling. How can that be if they're in the clergy? Why would that be? Because there's a difference between insight and enlightenment and maturity. Now, they're connected and they're related, but they're not the same thing, and it's really important for us to see that. We can gain insight. We can understand principles long before we gain the maturity to live out our lives in service to others, to have the effect that we're talking about. The brain part comes quickly. The understanding comes relatively quickly. But the rest has to be worked out. Another person said the most dangerous people are the ones who have insight without maturity. I think that's absolutely true. It's kind of like that saying we were talking about, that knowledge without wisdom is like a kid with his father's gun. Kind of like along those lines, right? Now, Ken Wilber, if you're familiar with him at all, he's an American philosopher. He, has a, he makes a distinction between states and stages, states and stages of consciousness. He talks about states as peak experiences, as those epiphanies, those aha moments. He says states are free. Stages you earned. Your stage of consciousness has to do with how much of your ego you have cracked. Starting at your childhood and your childhood development and moving into adulthood, have you now learned to be able to see yourself as part of something larger or are you still ensconced in an egotistical shell? The stages are what we work through and it takes time. The states can happen at any stage of development, any stage of consciousness. But here's the problem. Any insight that you gain, any state that you have, has to be interpreted by the stage that you're in. Make sense? In other words, however beautiful and expansive the insight or the enlightenment may be, it's going to funnel through how whatever the size of your stage may be. There's a saying, Whatever is received is received according to the manner of the receiver. So know how much you can say, how much I can say about all this stuff. You know, you got to check with Marion to see what stage I'm at. Even if I sound like I'm in a great state. See, this happens all the time. And we need to understand this. We can have a, com a, 
a peak experience, a conversion experience is probably the greatest thing. You know, someone has this huge conversion, uh, this conversion experience into the faith, and then the heavens have been open to them, and yet they're still really annoying, right? Really obnoxious, because they don't have a stage yet to receive that greater expansion. And that has to catch up, and hopefully it will as they continue to work. And so, why do so many believers, back to our original question, why do so many believers in Jesus, in God's grace, in abundance, and in love, still abuse Home Depot employees? Why are they still doing that? Enlightened to the fact of God's love and abundance, they're still funneling through the small ego self. It just takes time. We have to catch up to this. But it is something that we have to be conscious of. And the only way we're going to do it is if we're willing to increasingly let go of our control. It's not going to happen all at once. Don't even expect that it will. It's going to be layers falling off. It's going to be sanding, working the stone until it gets smoother. The love and the transformation of God is freely abundant. It's free. It's all there, but it's still funneling through our small ego self until we broaden that out. Love and transformation. It's only by the hard work that we're going to crack that ego open to a deeper identification. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That was his expression of what it meant to have his ego completely cracked open. Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ, but God in me lives. That was his expression of an egoless state that he had learned to be content in all his circumstances. But it took him to the end of his life to do it. Paul was a piece of work, right? It's all preserved for us in Acts and in, especially in Galatians. Read Galatians. You know, you see his stages growing with him through the decade or decade and a half of his written letters. It's a beautiful thing to see. When he says, why don't I do the things that I want to do? Why do I not do the things? And he says, what a wretched man I am. You see him working it out. He had the enlightenment at Damascus. He went away for 14 years into Arabia before he made his first journey, and even then, he's still working it out. He said, you've got to work out your salvation by fear and trembling. That's not an undoctrinal statement. It doesn't, it doesn't invalidate God's grace. It's the recognition that the stage has to catch up to the insight so that you become integrated, so that you have an effect, so that the people around you are blessed by your presence. Submitting, accepting, Suffering, accepting life's pain, deeply connecting to all life and to everything and seeing everything as one thing as yourself, redefines our sense of self, not as an individual segregated off, but as part of a larger organism, all one, non-dual, all one thing. That is the transformation that creates an effect that looks like love in your life. It's identical with the Father's love. And when we get to that point, then we can say with Jesus, I and the Father are one. And most importantly, the people that live with us the closest, the ones who hang their toothbrushes next to ours, will say the same thing. Let's pray. Father, we can say it and it sounds maybe simple. It sounds maybe rational and logical. It sounds like something that we should have known all along. And yet that's not the experience of our lives, and you know that. 
We are working to change things that we can't see. We're working to change things that we don't even know need changing. Help us to find the clarity that shines the light on the things that need changing and then grant us the patience to keep showing up to the small things that we do each day to change them. No big things, no master switch, just showing up each day patiently, lovingly, humbly to whatever the next step happens to be so that we can continue to shed the things that keep us from you and keep us from each other. Lord, we want that transformation. We want that effect. Help us to get there in the ways that you have shown us so diligently. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your hand at the small of our back, constantly guiding us wherever we go. Help us to yield to that guidance more and more, to submit, to let go of the control so that we can lean on you and not our own understanding. Thank you, Father, for everything, for your constancy. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.